Well, again, it is a blessing to be able to share with each of you this morning. And if you want to go ahead and turn to our passage already, I'm going to be in Acts chapter 12 this morning. And I want to do something a little bit odd today as I get started. I'm going to give you the answers to all of the blanks in my outline. I don't know how many of you are following along with the outline. It is available through our website and then also through our midweek email if you're a part of the church. I'm going to give you all those answers so that as you follow along, you'll already have them. Now, I'm going to tell you part of the reason is because I'm afraid I'm going to get distracted and not get to the end of my notes today. So here are the four points for my sermon. The first is powerful prayer. Know that when we are powerless, the best thing that we can do is to pray, and that in prayer, we discover great power. God is more than a last resort to us. He is our best resort. The second point is powerful faith. It's amazing what can be done with just a little bit of faith. Jesus talks about what can be accomplished with only the faith of a mustard seed, which is good because sometimes our faith can be very, very small. At times, we have to confess that although we believe, there's still some unbelief as well. But like Jesus multiplying fish and bread, when we bring the little amount of faith that we have to Jesus, he can multiply it and accomplish much. The third point today will be powerful witness. As God does a mighty work demonstrating his power and grace, we ought to be quick to share God's blessing with others. And while telling second and third hand stories can be very beneficial, there is nothing like sharing your own story. People take notice and their weak or little faith seems to grow. The final point will be powerful freedom. We all know that whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Well, to understand that fully, that means that we are not the same people that we once were. The world says once an addict, always an addict. The world says once an adulterer, always an adulterer. The world says once a liar, always a liar. But that is not true. When Jesus Christ comes into your life and you genuinely surrender yourself to him, giving the reins of your life over to him, you become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So walk in that freedom. Now, I share all of that now because I know I'm probably not going to get through all of this. So it's okay. But all four of these points are incredibly important. I don't want you to miss out on them. So let's talk about how we get to these points. First, I've already told you that we're going to be in Acts chapter 12 today. But before we get into the text, let me give you a little background information as to what is happening in the New Testament church leading up to Acts chapter 12. To begin with, we've already come through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then earlier in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit shows up for what we call Pentecost. This event has often been referred to as the birthday of the church. It is from this point forward that we begin to see bold preaching and miraculous works, much like what we saw in the life of Jesus as he walked the earth. But much like Jesus' reception, 
there would be those who would oppose the mighty works that were being performed through these men. In Acts chapter 7, we see the persecution of the church really take off, starting with the stoning of Stephen and then progressing with people like Saul going out to arrest and even kill anyone who claimed to be a follower of Christ. But instead of the church crumbling under the weight of persecution, the church thrived in that moment. People scattered throughout the Roman kingdom, expanding the reach of Christianity rapidly. By the time we get to Acts chapter 12, about a year has passed since the crucifixion of Jesus. And the Pharisees expected that this Jesus thing would be well into their rearview mirror by now. But it's not. So those in authority sought to crush this newly thriving faith. And what better way to destroy this faith, the faith of these people, than to publicly arrest and kill their leaders. And that's where we find ourselves today. Look at it with me in Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. So we see that James has just been killed, and it would seem that Peter is next. But this passage is not truly about the persecution of the church. This passage is about the power of God to do what nobody else sees as possible. In fact, perhaps even the church doesn't truly see this as possible. So Peter's sitting in a prison cell with no apparent means of escape. He is surrounded by soldiers chained between two of them while two others stand guard at the gate. These four squads of four soldiers would rotate regularly so that they could continually be prepared for any type of escape attempt. And there's little question as to what awaits Peter following the Passover celebration. He will be tried and then he will die. But... While Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. You know, in preparation for this sermon on Peter's miraculous escape from prison, I researched some of the greatest escapes in history. I watched the 1963 movie entitled The Great Escape, a true story about an escape from a concentration camp in World War II. In that particular escape, the goal was for more than 200 prisoners to escape in one attempt. Only 76 actually escaped, and many of them were later recaptured or killed. While it was a great escape, it wasn't nearly as successful as they planned. Another great escape involved the 1962 escape from Alcatraz Prison. 
involving Frank Morris and two brothers named Clarence and John Anglin. The prison was viewed as inescapable, located on an island in the middle of San Francisco Bay. Their daring late-night escape involved tunneling through concrete, climbing up and down pipes and gutters, and then making an inflatable raft out of raincoats. After more than 50 years, none of the three escapees have ever been heard from, leading many to assume that their escape, escape was unsuccessful. Peter's escape is very different from those which I just described to you. In the first place, both of these escapes seem to be at best questionably successful. Remember that in the first one, the goal was for more than 200 prisoners to escape. The end result was fewer than a dozen actually surviving the escape. And in the case of Alcatraz, many believe that their boat was likely washed out to sea where all three escaped men likely died. Those aren't very good escapes, truthfully. Yet Peter was successful. The other primary difference is found in the planning of these escapes. In both of these other escapes, these other escapes took years of planning and preparation. In Peter's case, the church simply prayed fervently for Peter. What we're talking about is powerful prayer. Now, if we truly believe in the power of prayer, then it seems logical that as we pray, we should expect his answers. And before we get into what all of this means and what happens with the rest of this story, I want to take a moment. I want to break down our key verse today. Remember, it's verse 5, which I've already read to you and quoted on a second occasion. But let me quote it again. While Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. Understand that as we look at Peter in prison, this is not some figurative prison, but rather Peter is being persecuted for his faith. He is in a literal prison. He knows that there is no means of escape. They have guards everywhere. There's no way he's getting out. He knows that the Passover will be over soon, and he will die. This is basically his last supper. At least that's what everyone would assume. Maybe you don't face a literal prison today, but there are many today who face a figurative prison. They feel trapped. They're imprisoned by all sorts of things that hold them back, and they feel like there's no means of escape. Some are imprisoned by self-defeat. They believe the lies that have been told to them over and over again. You will never measure up. You will never be good enough. You will never be able to make a difference. You don't matter. But they're lies. They're lies from Satan. See, God has already determined your value when he allowed his son to die for you and for your sins. Because he loves you that much. You must be incredibly valuable. In fact, to go along with that, another figurative prison. Some are imprisoned by the idea of being unloved and unlovable. They're broken by the lack of love that has been extended to them. 
other individuals that they have reached out to, they have loved, they have poured into, have rejected their love. And they question if anybody could ever truly love them. Some are enslaved, they're imprisoned by their past regrets. They wonder what they could have been thinking when they made those decisions. They wish they could take it back, but they know that they can't. Now they see themselves as damaged goods. Some are imprisoned by fear. Think about that, particularly during this time, while there are many people afraid of what tomorrow may hold. You have individuals who are dealing with a virus that seems out of control. There are people who are wondering if they will ever be able to go back to work, and they're afraid of what's around the next corner. What if, what if I can't handle whatever lies ahead of me? What if this illness, this job, what if this relationship is too much for me? What if I fail? Know this, God did not give you a spirit of timidity or fear. That prison is either of your own making or that of Satan. It is not from God. Some are enslaved, imprisoned by a sinful lifestyle. These are individuals who are trapped by sin. At least that's the way they feel. They want to get out, but they're not really sure that there is a way out. They see the habits that have developed in their lives and they feel like there's no way for me to escape where I'm at. I would suggest to you that there are some people that they will come out of sin for a short time only to immediately run back to it. Actually, it kind of reminds me of some individuals that we've dealt with sometimes in addiction. They become what I would call institutionalized. They're the addict who they know what it's like to be free, and they they want it. So in the middle of their addiction, they go to some rehab facility, and then they do really well while they're in there, and then they get out, and now they're free, and they love it, and they enjoy it, but they're only out for a little while because immediately they go back to their addiction, and then they have to go back to the institution. And they go back and they get the help that they need and they're doing really well. And then they'll get out and they'll do well for a little while and then they'll go right back. And they'll go from program to program to program. And it seems like the only way for them to truly be faithful, to be free, is if they are still in the program. I want you to know today that God offers a freedom that is not cyclical. It's not something you can have today and then give it up tomorrow and then you get it all over again the next day and then it's not what God offers. God never intended for us to remain in our sin. He intended for us to be set free. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 through 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And listen to this. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You don't have to go back to that sin. God can truly set you free. What is it that imprisons you today? 
What is it that you need to be set free from? Maybe it's that self-defeat. Maybe it is that past. Maybe it's that sinful lifestyle that you still feel enslaved by today. I want you to know that God can set you free. In fact, he desires to. Again, the verse says, while Peter was in prison, the church prayed. Prayer is a beautiful thing. And I've already said it today, but prayer is also a powerful thing. Yet God doesn't always do what we ask. Consider Jeremiah 14, 11. It's a verse that I shared online earlier this week. And the people of Judah are in the middle of their suffering. And Jeremiah is pleading for God's power and his grace to intervene for these people. But listen to the words of God to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 14, 11. Do not pray for the well-being of these people. I got to tell you, that's a really harsh statement coming from God. Why would God say, do not pray for the well-being of these people? Because God looked at their heart and he recognized that something wasn't right. They saw God as a granter of wishes rather than the Lord of their lives. They called out to him only because there was a need, but there was never any desire on their part to surrender to him, to actually enter into a right relationship with him where they would act and live different than what they did before. So he says, I'm not fixing their problem. I'm not going to take them out of this. Actually, maybe them being in a time of struggle is a good thing. Maybe this is what causes them to seek me. J.B. Phillips says, God will inevitably appear to disappoint the man who is attempting to use him as a convenience, a prop, or a comfort for his own plans. God has never been known to disappoint the man who is sincerely wanting to cooperate with his own purposes. So make sure that your heart is right as you come before the Lord. When you do come before the Lord, look at it as an opportunity to commune, to interact with a holy God who has already demonstrated his love for you and the sacrifice of his son. It is an opportunity and a privilege for you to get to know the one true living God. It is not just a source of wishes being granted. Prayer is the place that we ought to go. Consider the fact that Jesus not only instructed his disciples to pray, he also modeled it for them. He prayed both in front of them and he separated himself from them on multiple occasions to pray. Prayer was more than a ritual to Jesus. It was a bridge between he and the Father. If Jesus needed to pray to the Father, how much more so must we need to pray to our Father as well? You know, for some people, we have taken various prayers and we have made them nothing more than a ritual. Maybe they were never intended to be that way. As I think of the Lord's Prayer, I think that for many of us, that would be an example of this. I played high school football. I wasn't very good, but I did play high school football. Before every game, we would... 
gather together. We talk about team plans. This is what we're going to do. Of course, we've been preparing all week. Everybody, it's game day. It's time for us to get serious. Let's get ready to go out there. Everybody in. And all the hands would go in. And then a local pastor would come in and he would pray. And he would pray a somewhat generic prayer. And then he would start. And everybody else would join in. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be. What we were doing was we were praying the Lord's Prayer, but I got to be honest with you, it was just a generic prayer. We weren't genuinely expecting God to show up and do something miraculous on that occasion. Let me assure you that when we pray to God, it is much more than a ritual. It is an opportunity for us to be with the one true living God. Prayer is intended to be an opportunity for us to get to know him better and for him to reveal himself to us. Unless we think that prayer is all about getting what we want, consider the words of Soren Kierkegaard. He said, the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. His point is well taken as we realize that sometimes God doesn't need to change the situation so much as he desires to change us. I had a friend who shared with me that she regularly prayed for her thorns in the flesh, the people who irritated her the most, only to find that God would often change her heart toward them rather than changing them. Prayer is a powerful thing. It can change the situation but it also can change us. And we ought to pray during our times of greatest need. The last thing that we see in this particular verse is that while Peter was in prison, the church didn't just pray. It says the church prayed earnestly, very earnestly for him. There is a significant difference between prayer and earnest prayer. Generic prayer produces generic power. God calls for much more than just going through the motions. Again, back to that Lord's Prayer that sometimes we have diminished to nothing more than a ritual. Desperate, earnest prayer has the power to change things. Desperation is a great thing when it causes us to seek the Lord more intently. I think of the parent received word that their child is sick and he or she may not make it. It will take a miracle. How does that parent respond? Maybe a little weeping, a little fear, and they drop to their knees and they pray. And again, not just that ritualistic prayer, but they pour out their hearts and they pour everything they have into that prayer because this is important to them. They're desperate. Imagine what would happen if the church began to truly pray earnestly for God to move in our world and in our nation, in our church, in our community. God would change the situation. James 5.16 tells us that the fervent Prayer of a righteous man avails much. What do you need to fervently pray for today? Is it your kids, your 
spouse, your work. I'm going to tell you the best place we can go in the midst of our trials and struggles is to God. I knew there was a chance I might not make it as far as I wanted today, so let me just highlight what happens in the rest of our story here. In the next few verses, Peter does experience a miraculous escape. Peter is awakened by an angel. His chains fall off of him, and he is escorted out of the prison to freedom. What do you do when something like this happens, something so great happens, you go and you tell somebody? What do you do when you've been fervently praying for something and God answers? You celebrate it. Look at how this plays out with Peter in the New Testament church, beginning in verse 13. It says, he knocked at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. All right, so... I love the fact that this servant girl was caught off, so off guard that she forgets to let Peter inside. I imagine Peter wanting to get out of the street as quickly as possible. Remember, he's just been a part of a daring escape that may have seemed illogical, but it happened. And I even love that an entire conversation goes on inside before anyone decides to go and open the door for Peter. This just wasn't what they were expecting to happen that night. But forget about the surprise factor for a moment. They might not have had a clear picture of what was going to happen in Peter's situation. But they absolutely knew that the best thing for them to do was to pray to God. We so often treat prayer as a last resort. We try every other avenue first, and if everything else fails, then we call out to the Lord for help. It's an incredibly foolish route. The first place we always ought to turn for help is to the Lord. Consider the words of Abraham Lincoln, who said, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. We go to the Lord in prayer because that is the best place to go. And when we pray, we can trust that God will hear our prayers and that he will answer. These early church believers reap the benefits of their prayer. They receive God's blessing that night. In fact, as they witness the powerful work of God, it turns into an opportunity to praise God's name immediately. A prayer meeting that likely started out with a very somber note with the recognition that Peter probably is going to die tomorrow morning. Maybe as they prayed, they prayed that God would help him to remain strong. Maybe they prayed that God would provide comfort and grace and that God's grace would be sufficient regardless of what tomorrow held. It would seem they weren't really expecting him to be, to be able to escape. But before this somber meeting ends, 
there is a celebration that is taking place. In fact, we're told that in verse 17 that Peter actually has to tell them to be quiet because they're making such a ruckus. It's a big deal. Look at the great thing that has taken place. You can understand why they would be pretty excited. I would even say that the ruckus continues even to the next morning. Of course, the soldiers who were guarding him were not really celebrating. They were probably blaming each other because it wasn't my fault that you guys let Peter escape. What has God done for you that requires your celebration? I asked you earlier what your prison looked like. I asked you earlier what you needed God to move in. What do you need to pray fervently for? Now I ask you another question. What has God done for you that should require your celebration? As God has met needs for you, what do you need to celebrate? Know that the battle would not be over for the New Testament church. There would still be times of persecution, but on this day, Peter discovered a powerful freedom. Even his captors are killed. I believe today that God wants to set his people free. I know that that's a really brief way to look at some of this because I was trying to cover all of it. But I ask you again those three questions. What is it that enslaves you today? Is it your past? Are there things you've done that you wish you could take back but you know you can't? What do you need to pray fervently for? Are you hurting today? Is there someone in your life that is hurting? Do you have a loved one who maybe they're not walking with the Lord and you've been praying for them? Somewhere along the way, the fervent prayer has just turned, turned into you know, something you're supposed to do. Maybe it's time for us to pray fervently again for our lost loved ones. What has God done that you need to celebrate? If we can answer all three of those questions, I believe God still has a work that he wants to do. It's time for us to pray. It's time for us to be set free. And it's time for us to celebrate the work that God has done already. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, we are so grateful for your freedom, for your grace, and for your power. We're grateful to know that there is a place that we can turn in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our sorrow. I pray today that you would help us to recognize that you are our only hope. I pray for those who perhaps today are walking in their own prison. Those who perhaps they are living with regret about the past, believing lies that other people have told them, or maybe they feel trapped in their sin as if there is no way out. I pray right now that you would grant them freedom. I pray that you would help them to walk in a way that is not cyclical, where they go back to their enslavement over and over again, but rather they would be set free never to have to face those same imprisonments again. May they know the freedom that comes from your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for the one right now who is hurting, Pray for the one that is lost. I 
pray for the one that we love so much. Our hearts truly break for them. In desperation, Lord, help us to pray with all that we are. Lord, I pray that you would move in a mighty way in their lives. I have family members that do not yet know you. And right now, God, I ask that you would move in their lives, that they would find freedom and victory and forgiveness and grace, and that they would be transformed so that they might truly know what it is to be a child of God, that they would have a hope of eternal life, but even in this life, that they would be free. Lord, I pray today that you would move mightily in their midst. There are other issues that... Or they weigh heavy on me. And maybe you will choose to move miraculously in them, or maybe you will choose to change who I am. Lord, I pray that you would have your way. Lord, I pray that in the midst of all of this, as we see your hand move, as we see answers to prayer, as your Holy Spirit affects who we are and changes our circumstances. I pray that it would be an opportunity for us to not only draw near to you, but then to be able to celebrate the hand of God that is still available to the people of God. Lord, help us today to give you praise for the works that you have already done and even for the works that you will choose to do ahead. May we revel in the privilege of being called your children to know that we have access to an almighty, all-powerful God. Father, may you be honored as we rejoice over you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.